Welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. This session, I wanted to now look at the Bible because we're going to do a lot of Bible teaching this week. But I want to um, have a bit of a framework for the Bible. So we all come to the Bible with different preconceived notions. You know, we we read uh, when we read the Bible, we read our pain, our suffering, our questions, our answers. We already read them into the Bible, and this is why you can um, read the Bible for years, and you might read the same passage year in year out, and get the same message and the same thing, and be like, "Yeah, yeah, I know that." And then you read it one day, and it just means a completely different thing. Has that ever happened to you? You've read a Bible verse and gone, "Whoa!" And the Bible verse hasn't changed. You have, right? I mean. I don't know what's changed in you. Maybe you had an experience. Maybe you had a thought at some point that changed the way you see things. But it, it's you that's changed, not the Bible. Um, God hasn't changed. You haven't changed just the Bible. And so um, it's important that we recognize that um, we, we are the ones that um, interpret the Bible. We read into the Bible and we um, pull out of the Bible ultimately what we want and what we're ready for. Um, and so when we look at the Bible, we have to re- recognize that it's a collection of many different types of literature as well. It's not just, I think many people think of it as just like this, this book that God just gave you. Here's a book and it's full of everything that you ever need to know, which it isn't really, is it? Um, and it's got every truth that ever existed and it doesn't do that either. And it contains everything that ever happened and no, nope, doesn't do that. I mean, like a lot of the answers and the things we say the Bible is, it isn't. Um, and it's not the, the all-encompassing word uh, of who God is, right? I mean, can God be contained in 66 books, 66 pieces of literature? I mean, is that really possible? Is that God that was in the beginning, that is infinite, that is beyond words and anything? Do we then go, well, actually, he's beyond words, but he's not really. We'll put down this set of words, and then, boom, that's who God is. He's bigger, and he doesn't contradict who he is, but, um, but he is bigger than that, you know? And, and we experience that as well in our journeys. We, we realize, you know, who I am today and who I understand God to be today is different from who I understood God to be 10 years ago. Who changed? Not God. God was the same 10 years ago as he is today, but you have changed in your ability to understand him and he's grown and he's, he's developed. And um, I love... Um, the, the C.S. Lewis series. I don't know if you guys have read C.S. Lewis, if it's as big in Germany as it is in the UK, but uh, the Narnia series. And, and they're incredible books and some great movies come from it. Um, but in one of the books, um, uh, the book Prince Caspian, there's a character, Lucy, who hasn't seen uh, uh, one of the other characters for a whole year. And, and this other character is this lion uh, called Aslan who represents Jesus. Um, in the books and she hasn't seen him for a whole year and she she sees him and she goes wow Aslan you're so much bigger and his response is really interesting because he says no I'm not he says but every year that you grow you'll see me bigger and isn't that how God works I think sometimes we think whoa God is so much bigger and it's like well no he's exactly the same as he's always been He's always been this infinite being that is beyond comprehension. But every time we grow, God grows in our understanding, in our capacity to connect with him, to interact with him, in our relational, as our relational capacity grows, you know, 
God's ability to talk to us and, and to be heard by us grows as well. Um, you know, the conversation you have with your three-year-old is very different from the conversation you have with your 10-year-old. And then again, with the 25-year-olds, because they've grown and they now understand more language. They understand the way of the world. They understand more of who you are as a parent. And, and so as you're growing, your capacity to talk to your father is growing. Your capacity to read the scriptures is growing. Um, and so it's important that we recognize that because when we turn to the scriptures, the scriptures um, may be static, but actually we are not, yeah? Who we are when we open the Bible tomorrow is different from who we are when we open the Bible today. And it's certainly very different to who we were 10 years ago, you know? Um, and hopefully it will be very different 20 years from now. We'll open the Bible and see God much better and bigger and more glorious than we do today, right? I'd hope so, you know, as great as God is appear appearing to me today, I hope he's even better. Um, and I have nothing but evidence of that in my life. Every day he appears more amazing. He grows in my understanding. Um, and so when we look at the scriptures, we see some interesting things. And I think there's a lot of um, stuff I want to kind of challenge here because we're going to be looking at a lot of the Bible. But I want us to ask, well, what is the Bible? And how do we engage with the Bible? And what, what do we do with the Bible? Um, and so um, we often forget the Bible is a collection of 66 different documents. And some are letters to a friend. You know, Paul writes to his friend, Timothy. Uh, some are letters to an entire church. Some are stories about a person and a group of people like Jesus or Acts. Um, some are historical documents that talk about the history of a nation. You know, you look at uh, Kings and Samuels and Chronicle and, you know, these are more documentation that, that kind of looks at the, the progression of a nation. Some are songs, you know, look at Psalms. Um, you have Proverbs and, uh, um, you know, the Song of Solomon. These are wisdom literature and they, they're, they're written as um, uh, Proverbs, as, as, as understanding of how to engage with the world and what are the lessons that we learn from the world and what is wisdom in the light of who God is. Um, other books are poems. You know, you look at Genesis, we talked about that. That's a poem. Uh, the, the first 11 chapters of that is, is poetic. It's written as a poem um, and, uh, and it's written as myth. And myth doesn't mean not real. Um, so a lot of people think of myth and myth mythology, you know, like a, 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 I don't know, a horse with wings is a mythological creature or something like that. But myth is the way of writing. And so you can have myth that is real and myth that isn't real, but it's the way it's written. The way the story is written is myth. And Genesis is written myth. Uh, and, and that's the way it's been written. Um, later on, we see some of the Bible is written in not that way, but in a much more um, structured, character-driven, um, bit by bit with a lot more detail to tell you how many people were there, how many this, how many that. Um, and so it's very different to Genesis when we progress onto um, something like, you know, uh, Kings or Chronicles or something like that. Um, some of it is law. You know, you look at uh, Leviticus and Numbers and, and we see a lot of rules and regulations and these were written by priests or groups of people that wanted to establish what was the right thing to do, what was right and wrong for the Israelites. Um, there's a play in there. Job is a play. A lot of people don't know that, but it's, it's a play. Um, and it, it's the oldest book in the Bible, actually. It wasn't written by the Jews, which is quite interesting. Um, and so you know, you've got a whole bunch of different texts here. And would you read a play the same way you'd read a historical book? You know, would you read Shakespeare the same way you'd read the history of England? I mean, that's a very different type of book, isn't it? And if you were to read the lyrics of uh, Bob Dylan, would that be the same way that you would read a story about Winston Churchill? I mean, these are very different 
literature. And so it's important that we don't read Psalms the same way we read the Gospel. And we don't read uh, Genesis the same way we read Kings. Does that make sense? So you kind of follow that, that understanding because um, I, th I think oftentimes we pick up the Bible and we just pick it up and we kind of read it right through. Well, we don't read it right through because that'll take a wee while. But, you know, we work through it and we, we almost uh, trick ourselves into believing this is one book that God kind of wrote for us. And, and God didn't write it. And, and, and actually the most uh, painful truth is he didn't write it for you either. It was, it, there's, not a, there's not one word in the Bible that was written for you. Um, it was written to someone else. It was written by one person or a group of people to another person or a group of people. And you were never that other person or group of people because it was written thousands of years ago. There's no point of Paul thinking, oh man, uh, right, what do I want to say to these guys in the iDestiny school 2,000 years from now? Mm, okay, I'll just jot that down. And well, I really hope Rose gets this bit, so I'll add that. And oh yeah, I need to make sure Andy understands this. And Jonas, uh, well yeah, we need to. That's not what Paul's doing at all, is he? He's writing to a group in Ephesus. He's writing to a group in Colossae. I mean, these are the people he's writing to. You get to learn from the message that he shared with them, the, the lessons he was teaching them, the questions he was answering, the questions he was asking. All of that stuff is stuff we get to engage with, but it wasn't written to you. And, and so we have to go back into the context and go, who was writing? Who were they writing to? Why were they writing it? What was the message? And how does that translate to today? Because often as well, if we're honest, the translation to today is very different than the translation at the time, okay? So, you know, a good example would be in the laws when God says, okay, so if, when you have slaves, this is what you do. Well, today, when you have slaves, it's not an option, okay? We know that's a not a okay thing. You know, this has taken us a bit longer to figure out than it should have. But eventually we got to the point where, like, oh, maybe we shouldn't just treat people like animals, <laughs> right? But... It's easy for us to pick up the Bible, and actually most of uh, the, the pro-slavery movement in America, when that was a huge issue, the civil rights movement and everything like that, it was a biblical argument. They used the Bible to justify slavery, because the Bible justifies slavery. If you want to pick it out of context and not get the message and translate the message in today's context, you can do a lot of terrible things. Okay? And so again, you look at Hitler exterminating or trying to exterminate an entire group of people. He did that as a genuine desire to be a good Christian. That's what he thought. He, he would study his Bible and thought, yeah, this is it. We need to kill the Jews because they killed Jesus. And actually in the past, people that were against God's people, God eradicated them. So that's the right thing to do. And you're like, uh, wow, that's not what I got when I read my Bible, right? Um, and obviously there's more to it than that. That's a very simplified me uh, message of what Hitler was up to. But, you know, like people can read the Bible and they can argue anything. We have uh, people in America right now reading the Bible and going, obviously that means that we should uh, have more guns. And it's like, well, to me, on my side of the fence, I would see the message of the Bible as anti-violence, not more violence. Um, or they would go, oh, make America great again. And I'm like, well, the message of the Bible is anti-nationalism, not pro-nationalism. But it's very easy if you grab a message in the Bible and you open up a certain passage, you can see God as being very pro-nationalist. He's very pro-Israel. He's very anti-every other nation on the planet. And we somehow 
just change that to America. I don't know how that works. But anyway, right? I mean, but we see God being very pro-nationalist if we take it in a certain context. But when we read through the whole message of the scripture and we see, well, what's going on? What's the context? Who is he speaking to? Why is he speaking to him that way? And as we progress and move on, we go, okay, well, how does that translate into today's culture? We go, oh, actually, it's saying the exact opposite of what I thought. And so... It's important that we, we, we look at these things contextually and we ask the right questions. And again, we talked about Genesis. We're asking the wrong questions when we ask, how old is the earth? Because that was never the question asked. You know, when these people gathered, you know, let's talk about it. It's like, how did Genesis come about? You know, Genesis is not the first creation story. Believe it or not, there was a creation story long before Genesis. And so Genesis is our creation story. It's the Jewish uh, and Christian um, and uh, Islamic uh, text of like how the world came about in, in one sense um, but certainly the Jewish his, uh, Christian text for how the world came about how things were created um, is Genesis but actually long before it was written everyone in the world had a creation story um, it's called Enuma Elish um, you can go read it it's about 1,300 years older than Genesis okay so it's not even a question it's not like it was written like 50 years apart and we're not sure which was first this is like for over a thousand years they knew this story and then Genesis came along later. And the story is actually really interesting because it's almost identical in its structure as a poem. So again, it's poetic and it's myth. Um, and so it's written and it talks about in the beginning. And so it starts exactly the same way, but it says in the beginning were the gods. And the gods were at war with one another. They were at turmoil. And so some were in relationships with another, some loved one another, some hated one another, some were good and some were bad. But some of the bad people would be good sometimes and some of the good people would get really bad. And some would actually switch entirely and go from being a good God to a bad God. And there were gods over all the different um, things. And, and, and one God was the God above all the other gods. And this God, uh, Talmud, I, I think... Okay. My memory is not very good. But one God, Talmud, he raised up and he was above all the other gods. But the gods didn't really like that. And they didn't like that he was in charge. And so they went to war against this one God. They schemed and they planned to kill uh, this, this God, Talmud. And so they, they, they elected one guy to go and kill this guy, Talmud. And so he went and he killed this God. And out of this God, um, almost as a, as a, a picture of uh, victory, they tore him apart and they separated his firmaments. Okay, again, this is language from Genesis. Uh, they separated his firmaments and they created the earth, the, the sea and the sky. And so, again, we have that exact same phrasing in language. And so there's this, there's this, um, there's this creation story that already exists. And, and, and then what they did is they got fed up looking after this world, this world with a sea and a sky and it had animals and plants and everything in it. And they got fed up looking after it because we're gods. Why are we looking after this stupid planet? And so what did they do? They went and got this guy, Talmud, they got his wife, and they killed her. And they ripped her apart, and they created man and woman. And this man and woman were going to be the slaves to look after the world. And so they sent out man and woman, man, and this was man and woman kind, it wasn't, you know. And they sent them out to look after the world. And so men were created as slaves. The world was created out of violence and chaos and anger and, and bloodshed and... Um, the gods were in chaos themselves. Some were good, some were bad. But even if you were the biggest god and the most feared god, you could be killed and taken down and a new god could come into place. And so, it's a real chaotic kind of concept of the gods. And the world was born out of chaos and craziness and, and actually quite a bit of evil and violence and, and destruction. And we were created as slaves. And this is the story that was told for well over a thousand years, long before anyone wrote anything that was to do with Genesis. 
And so everyone in the known world would know this story. It was a storytelling culture. We still are a storytelling community. We tell stories all the time. Um, but back then, that, that was what they did. They would gather and they would share stories and they would discuss stories. And, and I think if, uh, you know, story is probably one of the main ways we actually engage with, with God, with each other, with religion, is, is we tell life through a narrative. Because life is a narrative, right? There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. We, we walk our way through the story. And I think that's how we make sense of things at times. Um, and so someday, at some point, someone sat down and was like, let's, let's tell the creation story. You know, I don't know, they finished dinner and they're sitting around the campfire and they're wanting to talk and have fun. Someone said, let's tell the creation story. And he, he leant forward and he says, all right, he says, in the beginning was God. And everyone would be like, wait, what? Right? So in the same way when I'm like, in the beginning were the gods, you'd be like, wait, that's not a story. You know, that's not how the story goes. It was just as shocking to them, in the beginning was God. And like, well, which God? The God of the sky? The God of the sea? The God of rain? The God of the sun? The God of the valley? The God of the mountains? Which God? Because they're gods for everything. I'm like, what do you mean, God? And, and just God. What? And then he creates everything himself. He alone creates everything. But not only that. He creates it out of goodness, out of perfection. You see the sevens running all the way through. The seven meant good, complete perfection. And so there's seven words, there's seven syllables, there's seven uh, words are repeated seven times or 14 times or 21 times. And, and it's just constantly good, 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 perfection, perfection, perfection. And this is how the world is created. And every time he creates something new, what does he say? It's very good. And so the world is created out of peace, out of wholeness, out of good, and out of this nurturing and love and care. There's no chaos, there's no violence, there's no destruction, there's no question. And who is this God? Well, it's absolutely clear he is good. There's no bad in him at all. There's no question of his goodness. He is just good. And so it introduced a God that has never been conceived of before because the gods were up and down and they would change from good to bad and they, they could be anywhere. And, and even if they were in charge, they might get killed and a new God would come about. This isn't in this concept of creation. And then what does he do? He creates mankind. And we talked about this in the last session, not as slaves, but actually as partners. And he asks them to take part and to engage with the world and to co-create, to go out and continue to create be fruitful and multiply. Look over this whole world and take it apart as, as your own and look after it and, and nurture it and develop it in the same way that I would want to do it myself. So there's this, there's this element, and we talked about image and likeness, this, this um, bestowing on them this God-likeness, this saying that you speak for me, what you do, you do in, on my behalf. And so the, the people aren't slaves. They aren't made as this, this throwaway thing, but actually they're made as this thing of this object of love and devotion. And the story continues, and, um, and we see the Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh, the two kind of Mesopotamian texts that, that basically parallel Genesis 1 through to Genesis 11. And so there's two creation stories, and we often read it as one creation story, and that's why people get some weird theology, okay? Um, so some people think uh, Adam was this one guy, and he was made like man and woman, because God created man and woman in the first bit, and then later, he goes, oh, and then I, uh, I made woman out of man. Um, and so he was like man-woman, and then he became like a man and then a woman. And it's just confusion because they don't realize it's two creation stories. It's, it's really just um, ignorance, really, more than anything else. So Genesis 1 through to Genesis 2, 4, okay? Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4 is the first creation story. It's a completely separate story. 
And that's the story we're talking about. This is a story that contrasts Anuma Elish, okay? And it's this, it's this poem that's written that's beautifully contrasts Anuma Elish. Genesis 2, 4 through to chapter 11 is a completely separate story written by a completely different author to answer completely different questions. Uh, it's, it's completely different. Um, and this is why it starts again and it tells the creation story completely again, doesn't it? And there's interesting elements that we notice. So in the first creation story, there's seven days, and on the seventh day, God rests. In the second creation story, there is no seventh day. God doesn't stop, and he doesn't rest. There's an element of an ongoing creation that he asks mankind to continue to create. And, and so there's, there's different elements and different stories, and this is why you get into trouble when you start to think, oh, well, this is a mathematical, scientific, uh, historical document of like how many days were involved and how long it took. And That's just not what they were writing about. They were writing about... Um, spiritual um, and philosophical kind of concepts. You know, they were asking the big questions of who is God? Is he good? And they went, yes, he's this one guy and he is good. Not all these many gods who are good and bad and indifferent. Um, and so the, the story goes on and you actually see within that Genesis story, we've got the flood and things like that. Well, there's a flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh as well. So again, it's, it's, it's a continue that, that God, as he's telling this narrative, Genesis seems to be to be adding his commentary on what the narrative already was. He's not starting a conversation, he's joining one. There already is a story of why are we here, who, who are we, what's going on. He joins the conversation and says something very different, very similar and yet sub subtly extraordinarily different. So he writes his own text, it's very similar. The Genesis story is really similar to the one already, but it's got differences that actually because it's similar with a difference, it screams something. Does that make sense? You know how sometimes if you say something that's almost exactly the same, but you change it slightly, that, that jumps out at you even more almost than if you just told a different story. And I think this is what um, we can see in the Genesis story. And so things like the flood, um, the flood story in the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's funny. Um, it's funny now because this isn't our God, uh, but it's, it's pretty messed up. Um, not that our story is much better, um, but it's pretty messed up, right? So gods, they're, they're, they're having their nap up in the heavens. And one day the, the people on the earth, these slaves that they created to look after the earth, they're making so much noise, they can't get to sleep. And it's just made us angry. And so they just go, screw it, let's kill them all with a flood. And so they just get out of bed and they kill everyone. And the only reason someone survived is because he somehow got some insider information and, and tricked the gods by making a boat and sneakily getting through the flood. And so all of a sudden our story has a real significance. Um, and it's easy for us to read the story of Noah's Ark and be like, uh, God's a psycho. Right? I mean, you're not, I don't, I think you've become a bit brainwashed as a Christian if you don't read Noah's Ark and think God is a total and utter psychopath. I, I'm honest. Because we, we tell a story to our kids. I remember one time I was in, a, I was actually in Germany and I was talking to a three year old and uh, she was showing me her Bible storybook and I had lots of pictures and things. And, and I was like, oh, what's your favorite bit? And, um, and it's funny, she opens it up and there's Jesus hanging on a cross covered in blood. And I'm like, it's kind of messed up story for a three-year-old if we actually stop and think about it, right? And I said, like, oh, do you have any other favorite stories? She's like, yeah. And she opens up and she's showing me the book of Noah, uh, the story of Noah. And she's like, Noah and the animals and everything. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I'm reading through it. Uh, it was in English, thankfully. I'm not that good with German. I'm reading through it. And I'm like, yeah, no, it does say literally every person on the planet dies. They drown to death. And I'm like, 
We tell three-year-olds this story. This is a messed up story. And I, yeah, absolutely. We focus on their, oh, animals came in two by two, hurrah, <laughs> right? Um, which isn't even true either. Like, you know, some of the animals were two by two, some of them were seven. But that's another thing we gloss over. We, we, look, we, we create our little, like, stories and our things, but we actually gloss over God one day went, screw this, let's kill everyone. I mean, God is good. Yay. Oh, he just killed every person on the planet except for, like, eight people. I mean, we, we gloss over that, right? I mean, let's be honest. Let's be real. That's a messed up story. If God did that today and you were on the boat, would you be sitting thinking, praise God, what a good God I serve? And actually, I think a lot of people got really upset with the movie Noah. Did, do you guys remember that? People got really mad with it, but it's actually quite interesting because it engages with a lot of these things that are uh, in the text that we don't read because we read Genesis as like a historical document. Um, but actually, it engages with a lot of uh, these concepts and the contrast between uh, Genesis and Ekebe Gilgamesh. And actually, whoever worked on developing it um, actually put some serious legwork in, probably more so than the average pastor. Um, but what he did, um, what I love about it, is it shows the humanity of Noah. Noah is struggling with this. God is going to kill everyone? And, and you, you almost have... And a guy who is more merciful and compassionate than God, right? If we're honest, we've got a guy on a boat who's more compassionate about all these people that are dying than the God that's portrayed, who seems to be completely indifferent and not care, right? But what is actually going on here is when we read the text of Noah, um, what we see is we see there's a flood that's happened. A flood has happened in the world, and all the world, all the all the different people are trying to answer why did this flood happen, right? In the same way that someone gets cancer, why does it happen? Someone dies, why did that happen? This happens, why did it happen? This is the first question we ask, isn't it? And it's the most unhealthy question because most time we don't know why did they cancer. I don't know, right? I don't know. Well, it could be because they smoked. Yeah, but that guy smoked for 50 years and never got cancer, so I don't know. Like I just don't know why. And, and why is never really the most helpful question. I think there's a lot better questions we can ask than why. But this is what's happening, right? We're human. And so there's a big flood, and it probably wasn't worldwide. Um, it could have been, but it was very unlikely. Um, but it was certainly a big flood that took out most of the area. The geographical area of this region was definitely affected by this flood um, to the point where they would have said the whole world, I mean, everything they knew. I mean, it's not like they were popping over to America for like a shopping trip in New York. You know, they didn't know America existed, you know. And so this was the world <laughs> as much as they know. Um, and so it was massively flooded, massively affected. Most people would have died in it. Obviously, people survived from different civilizations, okay, obviously because different civilizations wrote about the flood, okay? Um, and so different civilizations are trying to write. What happened? Why did this happen? What, what, what can we gain from this? And so the answer for the Mesopotamians is the gods must have got really angry with how much noise we're making. There's just, you know, you know the gods. They're a bit good, bad. They get angry. They've got some temper problems, and they must have just snapped and killed us all. Can you imagine living in that culture thinking, oh, well, what if we piss them off again? Right? I mean, that, that's the big question in the back of my mind is like, how do I not do that? <laughs> right? Because I don't want to be, I got lucky. Like, I'm somehow in the group of people that survived this, but I don't want that to happen again. Whereas the, the Jewish narrative is very different. Their answer is very different. Their answer is, man, we've really dropped the ball here. We were just messing up our world, we were destroying our world, we were trying to build empires and nations and we were starting to war with each other and, and we, we wanted nothing to do with God and we turned our back on God and God obviously was really devastated. 
excuse me, he was devastated, he was grieved that this had happened and he wanted a fresh start. And it's not a particularly good story. It still looks like God's quite terrible in one sense, but we're looking at it from thousands of years later. We've seen God through the lens of Jesus. These people have not seen God through the lens of Jesus. And so what you do is you, you're dangerous if you compare that to Jesus rather than comparing it to the story it was meant to be compared with. And you suddenly go, wow, God's really merciful. God's actually quite a good God. He's doing it because he doesn't want the world to fall apart. He's doing it because he doesn't want the world to be destroyed. He does, he's doing it because he wants people to be healthy. And the truth is, what happens the second after they get off the boat? Sin. They start screwing up already, right? I mean, it's the first story afterwards. Noah's getting in some serious, messed up, weird situations with nakedness and his daughters. And yeah, it's weird. Okay? So bad stuff happens almost immediately. Um, and so if this was God's real plan, like it didn't really work out well, did it? So I don't think actually that it's the, and you can take it this way. Again, this is, this is the beauty of scriptures. You can interpret it many ways and, and you're free to try and engage with it how you want. But I would say it's quite unlikely that this is a documented, accurate record of what God's plan was. And actually it's much more likely this is a documented record of how his people grappled with what he was doing or what, what, what had happened how they answered the questions of life, how did they engage. And actually, they're giving us a much better God. And what we see is actually, throughout the scriptures, we see this appearing of a much better God. And the God we start with um, in, in his engagement with civilizations is a very different God than the one we end with. Now, God hasn't changed, but who's changed? His people. His people are growing and learning. And so a good example of this is, um, let's look at Abraham. So Abraham is the father of Israel, okay? He's the, the, the person that Israel starts with and, and is born in. Um, and we look at Abraham and we often think of like the, the Bible and Israel and God's people, they just always were, right? I mean, that's God created the world and then he had his people. But that's not the case, is it? God created the world and then he had a couple of people that followed him here and there, Enoch and you know, so on and so on. But actually, it wasn't until Abraham that he had his people. He called this group of people and Israel became a nation from Abraham. And that's the promise, isn't it? Abraham, I'm going to build a nation from you. They'll be blessed to be a blessing and all this good stuff. So actually, it's in Abraham. But by the time Abraham's around, where is Abraham living? In a city. There's literally millions of people on the planet probably at this point. Thousands at least probably millions if you have a city and there's other cities. I mean, we're talking, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. And again, this depends on how you see uh, creation. Is it, you know, is the world 10,000 years old or is it, you know, whatever, you know, 6.7 billion. Obviously, there's different elements of how you're going to see this. But, but either way, we look at it, Abraham's in a city and there's a lot of people around. And so he's coming to God not as someone that has always known about God. He's always known this story of Genesis and who, who God is. And, because that doesn't exist yet when, Genesis, when Abraham's called, right? I mean, the story of Genesis doesn't exist. It's written much later after Abraham. We're talking maybe probably 2,000 years at least um, after Abraham. And so it's, it's, it's a long time after that they write Genesis. So Abraham, he doesn't know this story. He doesn't know about the God. And actually what's interesting is when God shows up, he doesn't even introduce himself as the God, the only God. He asks Abraham, he says, I want to be your most high God. And this meant a lot, okay? So let me tell you a bit about the culture in which Abraham lives. So he lives in a city, and we know this from archaeological records, we know this from anthropologic study, we know this from sociology, we know this from a lot of different things, from historical records. We know that the, the cultures at this time, this is the Bronze Age, basically, we're talking, okay? So at this time, we're talking 
it's, it's a while back, and we know the culture this time, they basically knew very little about anything, okay? And it's quite harsh, uh, and they would, at the time, they'd be like, no, we're very advanced, you know? In the same way, we're probably advanced, and, you know, 2,000 years from now, people are going to be like, uh, what the heck were they doing? You know, like, driving cars on the road, or, you know, whatever it is, or living on one planet instead of 12, or I don't know. Don't know what we'll be doing in a few thousand years, but, you know, we look back and go, oh my gosh. And, 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 and it's important we remember that. We look back and this is people that they worshipped the sun gods because they thought the sun might not come up tomorrow. Okay? This is the people we're dealing with. You know, these are people that, that worship the rain gods because it might not rain if you don't worship the rain gods. And then the, the, the plants will magically grow out of the ground. Because we don't know how plants grow in the ground. We just know if rain happens, it works most of the time. Like, I mean... They don't understand simple things like planting things, never mind the big questions of the universe, okay? And this is why we know they weren't asking how old was the Earth, right? Because they didn't even know the Earth wasn't the center of the world with the sun that came over it, you know, like that. I mean, these people were very, very basic, very primitive. And what happens in primitive societies is we create gods for everything. We create gods for it everything we don't understand. So I don't understand how the sun works, we need a sun god. I don't understand how the rain works, we need a rain god. Everything that's important that you need but you don't understand, you, you attach divinity to it. And this happened throughout the known world, whether we're in South America, whether we're in Asia, whether we're in Africa, people attached some sort of divine spirituality to everything they didn't understand. And so there was a god of the rain, the god of the clouds, the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of uh, the earth, the god of the the, the uh, fertility, the God of life, the God of death. There was gods of everything because they needed something to answer, something to answer to, something to, to try and manipulate this thing that was completely out of their control, which obviously a lot of this stuff wasn't out of their control. They just didn't understand it. You know, growing crops isn't out of your control. You just need to understand about irrigation and planting and, you know, the right amount of sunlight and rain and whatever. But they didn't know these things. And so in this culture, what they would do is they would offer sacrifices, sacrifices born in this time. And so we don't understand the, the rain and why it rains, but we need rain. So we better offer a sacrifice to the rain god so it rains. And so they would get crops, uh, a bit of crop, and they would burn the grain. And somehow they got the idea of burning things. The, the, it would go up to the gods, and the gods lived up there. Because we can be down, and we can dig down. We know about down, but we don't know about up. And so gods were up there, so they burn, and it would go up, and hopefully this smell was a nice smell. I don't know, I've never smelt burning wheat, but I can't imagine it's a particularly nice smell. But anyway, the gods loved it, apparently. Um, and what's the problem with offering a sacrifice to the god of the rain, or the god of the sun, or the god of life? They don't exist, right? I mean, that's a problem, right? And they, so they don't know this, but, but you offer a sacrifice to the god of rain, well, it's either going to rain or not, right? But it's nothing to do with the way you're burning crops. I think you have to burn a lot of crops before it affects the, the rain. <laughs> it's just going to rain the next day if it was going to rain, and it's not going to rain the next day if it's not. And so what happens is you burn the crops and say it rains the next day, and you think what? The gods heard me. They were pleased with my sacrifice. So next time I need rain, what do I do? Burn crops. But it doesn't work this time. Huh. Well, what do I do now? Well, burn more crops. It's the obvious choice. Obviously, they were insulted that we tried to burn the same amount. We, we need to burn more crops. Um, and it works again maybe this time, or maybe it doesn't. What's the solution? Well, we need to do more. So it escalates, and maybe they start killing animals. They start sacrificing. And I say maybe, we know this. We can see through archaeological records, actually, there's a very clear progression. And this is all throughout the world. 
every ancient civilization, we can see this, this progression of sacrifice, of, of this paganistic kind of sacrifice uh, culture. We would offer a sacrifice to this unknown deities. And so we would burn the crops and then we'd burn animals and, we, and it would go from like, you know, start off with like doves or pigeons or something. And, and then before you know it, you're, you're killing sheep. Uh, and then before you know it, you're killing your big fat cows. And then you're doing your prize cow, the very best cow you've got. But if that works or doesn't work, it's still kind of irrelevant because the God isn't up there. And so what's the next escalation? People. I mean, what do you prize more than your best possession? People. And so that might work or might not. And so you, you see like, you know, like the Aztecs would like get the random people and kill them on the top of the, the thing or, you know, and it happens in, in, in all sorts of cultures. The Bible talks about um, people, uh, the, the Malachites killing uh, babies. And I mean, it, it talks about all those things. So what happens when you've got, you're killing people and it's and it good or bad and then it escalates. What's the next escalation? We start killing children because they're so much more valuable, right? My child is so much more valuable than the guy down the road, Steve. <laughs> but then that doesn't work, so maybe we need to escalate even more. So what is the most prized possession I have? Full stop. My firstborn. And so, in, in, in all throughout civilization, we've seen all in these different areas, we see this progression of sacrifice over the years that resulted in people sacrificing their babies, their kids, their, their firstborn. All because they just didn't understand how crops worked, or this or that, right? I mean, this is kind of crazy. Um, and so, what's the problem with that, right? If you've got a God for everything, you've got a God for like a thousand different things, the sun, the moon, the sky, the crops, the, the fields, the lands, the cattle, the baby, like uh, fertility, how you give birth, you know, all these different things that you don't understand fully. What's the problem with only having one firstborn child? You can only really, really, really trust that you're going to really please one God, right? I mean, you can't give your firstborn child to 12 different gods. So people would pick, and this is the phrase, a most high God. And so say you were a farmer, who would you offer your most high God to? You probably would be the, the God of the rain or um, maybe the God of the, the, I don't know, crops or whatever the different gods would be called in different civilizations. But you would pick the most important thing to your livelihood, to your life. And so you would offer up your child to the God of rain, say. Um, perhaps you were um, in a small family and, and you know, uh, you didn't have many children. And you think about childbirth. Can you imagine, like, I mean, we're talking, it's only 120, 130 years ago where one in five children died at childbirth because we didn't wash our hands. I mean, that blows my mind. It was only at some point someone was like, maybe we should wash our hands. And we went from losing 20% of children at childbirth to that dropping staggeringly. And this is 120 years ago. What do you think it was like 5,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago? What do you think it was like then, right? Because we had pretty good medicine at that point still. I mean, they knew nothing. They didn't understand. Can you imagine, I mean, imagine the amount of miscarriages that would happen or people dying at birth or just after birth and, and they didn't understand and, and they would probably turn to the God of life or the God of fertility or the God of something and they would desperately want to know the answers. Especially maybe if you're uh, particularly prob problematic and prone to that. Maybe you're losing every child and you desperately want to have a family because that's how you have livelihood in that time. You can't survive if you don't have a big family. 
who's going to cook the food and, and make the food and, and, and go to work and develop. I mean, this, is, this was really important. And so they were so invested. I mean, this is a hard time. And this, this, is, this is not to say, look how stupid they are. I mean, this, we, didn't, we, we don't know stuff today that people will probably think, look how stupid we are. You know what I mean? At some point, it's going to get to a point in human history where we look back and go, wait, people died from cancer? Right? I mean, and yet right now, it's almost this, this terrifying concept. Or wait, people died of AIDS or, you know, or complications of AIDS or however you word it. You know, and so can you imagine how invested you are in some of this stuff? I mean, like look at that family that can't have a child. I mean, how invested are you in sacrificing to the God to make sure you get the right thing? And so maybe you're in that small family and what, who would be your most high God would probably be the God of life or fertility or whatever it would be called. And so people had this collection of gods, dozens and hundreds and maybe even thousands of different types of gods, some minor, some big. Um, but whoever it was, they would always come to the point where they would pick their most high God. And this would get their greatest sacrifice, the most they could offer them. And so it's interesting that Abraham comes along, right? And, and God shows up to him and he's in this culture. This is his world. This is his life. And this is why God says, Abraham, I want you to leave your father and his culture and the way of the city that you're in. And I want you to head back this way. And it's interesting that all throughout Genesis, everyone that is mentioned moving in a direction is always moving in one direction. And then Abraham is called to come the other direction. It's, it's, it's actually saying, look, Abraham, I want you to turn around and head the other way. And so there's something really amazing in this of, of God saying, look, I want you to come out of this culture and do something different. And I'm going to show you a different way that's very different. And yet he calls him, I want to be your most high God. God doesn't say, stop believing in all these gods. He just says, I want to be the God you look at the most. He's your main God. It's very interesting. He works with Abraham where he is. Because if you have no understanding of the world and there's thousands of gods, it's very hard for you to let go of all of that. And so I don't know, but God appears to do it. In fact, did you know that it's only halfway through the second book of the Bible. It's only in Exodus, or Moses 2, as you guys call it. Um, it's only in Exodus that God reveals himself as Yahweh, as, as the God, the only God. All the way up to that, he calls himself by, by pagan names. El Shaddai, uh, Adonai, all these names. They're the names that the Babylonians gave gods, and you know, Canaanites gave gods. I mean, these are pagan gods, and God's like, yeah, sure, call me whatever, I don't care. Oh, it hurts my head. Right? Because, I mean, God just doesn't seem to care. Um, anyway, um, so he calls Abraham out. And what does he say to Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to be your most high God. I'm going to show you a different way. This is going to be a different thing that you can't even imagine. And you know what? I'm going to make you an amazing nation. And you're going to bless everyone else. I'll bless you so you can bless everyone. I'm going to give you a child. And it'll be, you'll have descendants as numerous as the sand on the shores and the stars in the sky. I mean, it's an amazing prophetic word, isn't it? And there's some ups and downs. Eventually, we get there. Some big ups and downs, actually. But eventually... We have a child. We have this firstborn child, and it's amazing. Um, and what happens? What does Abraham do? He's, he's talking to God one day, and what does God say? He says, Abraham, why don't you kill your kid? And what happens? Nothing. Abraham goes, okay. I'll get on that in the morning. You know what's mental to me? It's not that God asks Abraham to kill his kid. That's mental. Like, that really is, like, what the heck? God is psycho, right? I mean, it's back in God is psycho material, Right? And we answer it in lots of different ways. Well, he's testing Abraham, he's doing this, he's doing that, or whatever. But actually, what's more mental to me is that Abraham, as a dad, goes, okay. And why is it mental? Because we don't look at it in the context of who is Abraham, where has he come from, and what is his journey? Because in his culture, when your most high God says, I want your firstborn, you go, okay. 
I mean, Abraham's thinking, oh, of course, that's just, I knew that was coming. I mean, he's almost, he's probably been expecting the, the thing of, I have to offer up my son. And so the, the, the big thing in this story is not that God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. And it's not even that Abraham goes ahead and does it. I mean, Abraham knows how, when, where. I mean, he gets his stuff, he goes up the mountain, he knows how it works. The big thing in this story is actually how it ends. Because the big thing that God is doing in this story is he's saying with a crescendo, look, Abraham, I'm setting you up. It's a bit like that Genesis story. He's saying, look, it looks very similar, but boom, I'm nothing like the other gods. I don't want your child sacrifice. In fact, here, I'll provide something for you. You don't even have to bring the sacrifice. And so he introduces um, a way to interact with God without the need for child sacrifice. Now, it's still pretty mental because it's gross, right? I mean, our thoughts of like, oh yeah, let's get a sheep, let's slit his throat and get covered in blood and kill it and, and burn it up. And I mean, that's, that's very, to us, again, thousands of years later, we're like, man, this is pretty messed up, right? I mean, it, it kind of is a bit messed up. But again, in the context, what's he doing? He's going, right, we've gone from child sacrifice to killing some sheep. That's a pretty good progression, right? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's a pretty good progression. I think there's a lot of people that would say, good move, excellent move in the right direction. But it doesn't stop there, does it? We actually have the laws that, um, that Moses uh, brings down the mountain. And again, it, it, uh, and I hope this isn't messing with you too much. I, I, what I'm doing is uh, I'm hopefully building a bit of uh, a foundation here, but, but the laws that Moses brings are a copy of the laws that already exist in the world. So the, there was already laws in the world. They weren't like lawless people just running around, like, you know, killing everyone and things like that. There was rules saying, don't kill people, don't do this, don't do that. Um, and the laws that Moses brings, when we look at them compared to the laws that we have, we can look through historical archives and, 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 and um, archaeological findings and things like that, and we can see the laws that existed. And they're remarkably similar. Really, really similar to the point where you go, these are just a copy. But there's some significant differences. And again, it's in the difference that we find God and we find what he's doing. And so what do we find? We find certain things, so sacrifices. In the other laws, there were dozens and dozens of rules and regulations for how do we do sacrifice. But in the Mosaic rules, there's five sacrifices and only one is required. The other four are, if you don't believe that the first one did the job and got you right with God, you can do some of these. <laughs> it's almost like, look, if you really, really, really need sacrifice, keep doing it until you feel better about it. But seriously, you don't. Um, but, there's, but there's still a sacrifice in it, isn't there? But then later on, what does David say? So you, you travel a bit further down the line, and David goes, well, God doesn't want sacrifice. He wants obedience. And you think, well, David, hold on, hold on. Do you have a copy of the Bible? Because earlier on it says God wants sacrifice. And so the danger is that we just pick up the Bible and go, this is what God's like. And we go, well, hold on. It looks like he's on a journey here. And further down the line, what does it say? Jeremiah says God has never wanted sacrifice. And you're like, wait. What do you mean? He's never wanted sacrifice. Again, he's like, does Jeremiah have a copy of the Bible? We should get him. Like maybe the Gideons should pop around to his house and make sure he's got one of those little red Bibles. Um, it, it says in the Bible, God wants sacrifice. And, and Jeremiah goes, God has never wanted sacrifice. Hosea, same thing. God does not want sacrifice. And there's coming a time where sacrifice will never be needed again. There's a journey and a trajectory that the Jews are on. And how does it end? Jesus. How does Jesus, he comes and he is the sacrifice. And sacrifice does end and sacrifice is no longer needed. And in fact, actually, it goes even further because it doesn't just end with a sacrifice. Paul comes along even further down the line and he goes, hey, can I talk to you about sacrifice? 
you are a sacrifice, and sacrifice has nothing to do with death, but life. You're a living sacrifice. God doesn't want you killing things, God wants you living. That's the sacrifice that's pleasing to God. And so we've gone from one extreme of killing babies all the way to living as a sacrifice that is pleasing to God of just doing what is just beautiful and wonderful and holy and righteous and loving and grace-filled and peaceful and kind and joyful, all these amazing fruits. That's the sacrifice that God wants. But he took people on a journey to get there. And this is really, again, it goes down to who is God and what's motivated by him? What, what is he motivated by? Because I think sometimes we're so focused on a God who's motivated by avoiding sin that that's a painful truth that he's happy to take thousands of years to get us from A to Z. He literally will go A, B, C, D. And we're like, right, because we right, right at the back, and let's be honest, we're probably not at Z, right? Okay? Because that's the other thing. We think we're here. We're, we've arrived. But actually, we're still growing and learning and discovering more of who God is. But it's important that we, that we see that this message runs through the Bible in almost every single way. Um, let me give you another example. Um, uh, we look at the, the laws. Let's go to the laws again, okay? It's really easy for us to open up these laws and go, God, they're so barbaric. I mean, and they are. They're written in the Bronze Age. I mean, this isn't surprising that they have laws that say, uh, if you're on your periods, you have to go outside the town for a week. I mean, that's the rules. And you're like, and we look at that today and are like, uh, what the heck? Right? It's like, seriously? Right? And I always love to uh, joke with people that are intense on the law. You know, that person's got a tattoo and they shouldn't be allowed in church. That's terrible. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you're in the church and you're on your period. So out you go. Right? Or, oh, you're wearing a, a t-shirt that's made of cotton and nylon. That's against the law. I mean, there's some pretty backwards laws in here. Okay? So, but... We fail to see what the point is. And so uh, one of the laws um, is really interesting, and it's an eye for an eye. Have you ever heard of that? I mean, Gandhi made a good point, right? A non-Christian made a very good point when he says, an eye for an eye kind of just leaves us all blind, right? I mean, it's not the best system in place here. Scooping out everyone's eyes, I don't know why everyone was losing eyes in the first place, okay? But an eye for an eye is just a terrible system to work. You hurt me, I'm going to take your eye back. Um, but actually, when you look at how it was given, you look at the original context of that law, the ancient Mesopotamians had their law, and it also involved people losing their eyes. So obviously, people were like running with scissors or something at this point. Um, I don't know what the deal was, but eyes were getting lost. Um, and, but the law was very interesting. What did it say? It says, if you lose your eye, if someone causes you to lose your eye, if they are richer and of a higher social caste than you, they are to pay you for your eye. If they're on the same caste as you, same social level as you, you can take their eye. If they are poorer than you, if they're of a lower social caste, you can put them to death. And that was the law. So when God comes along and he gives a law saying an eye for an eye, what's he saying? He's not talking about eyes. What is he saying? I want you to treat people equally. Human beings are human beings regardless of how their social standing looks in society. Wow, that's a pretty big jump. So we look at it all the way over here and look back and go, why are people cutting each other's eye out? That is not how to run a civilization. But actually, when you go back there, this was a crazy, liberal, progressive message. The Jews were saying, oh, we're going to treat everyone as equal. And everyone around them is going, well, that's crazy. How can you run a society like that? But then it doesn't stop, does it? I mean, we, we continue and Jesus comes along. And what does Jesus say? He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. And it's funny, right? Because we go, well, yeah, you did. 
right? God gave us that rule. <laughs> and Jesus says it almost as like, well, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, that nonsense. And it's like, well, you said that, right? Um, and he says, what does he say? He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. I say to you, turn the other cheek. If someone causes you to lose an eye, you say, it's okay. That's the end of the conversation. What? Again, this massive jump, this massive progression, this radical, totally counter-cultural way of seeing the world, seeing God, seeing ourselves, seeing society. And yet, it massively contradicts what the Bible says earlier. And so it's important we don't approach the Bible as a static document. It's not this black and white text from beginning to end. If you go here, okay, that's what God's like. And then here, oh, God's exactly the same. Because he isn't always exactly the same. And what he's saying isn't exactly the same. Why? Not God is changing, but the people that he's engaging with are. And they're growing and they're developing and they're coming from their pagan culture. They're evolving. They're coming out of that. And now they're serving one God instead of many gods. And now they're engaging with people in a more loving way. And now they don't need to sacrifice humans. They're sacrificing animals. And eventually they go, you know, we probably don't need to sacrifice anything. That's probably not how God wants to operate, by killing lots of things. Like, there's a, there's a progression and a development. And, and it's important that when we open the Bible, we see a progression. If you're not seeing the progression and you're not asking what is the progression, because God is not static and he doesn't stop. God continues to move all the time. And so if you're not asking what is the movement, what is the trajectory, where are we going, where are we starting and where is God going, you're going to make it about the moment that he's in. And so we go, oh, there's the rules for having slaves. That's how we'll have slaves today. And you're like, oh my gosh, you're such an idiot, right? Because then we end up having slaves in 2000 you know, in 16. Uh, that's stupid. You ask, okay, how do those slavery laws compare to the slavery laws that already existed? Whoa, they're, they're crazy. I mean, it talks about treating slaves like, like other human beings that like equal, like giving them freedom after a certain amount of time. They can buy their freedom. I mean, this is very progressive stuff. God's making a big shift for them. And so you go, wow, what's the direction God is taking people on regarding slavery? What's the direction people, God is taking people on regarding sacrifice, regarding treating others that hurt you and wrong you? Oh, he's taking us in a direction that says, I'm going to love my enemy, not I'm going to beat my enemy with the same stick he beats me. And so it's very, very important that when we open the Bible, we understand that there is a journey undergoing constantly. It's constantly a, a, a movement and, a, and, a, and a, a progression. And if we read it as a, a, a moment in time, that is, and that is it, and it never will change. And, it never, and I'm not saying there aren't timeless truth. Of course, truth is, is constant the whole way through. God is constant the whole way through. But our revelation of that and our understanding of it and how deep we've delved into it and how much God's engaged with us in that way is constantly changing and growing. Have you ever wondered what... Um, John meant when it says in First John, uh, sorry, in John the Gospel, uh, John 1, 14, it says that um, nobody has seen the Father except Jesus. Have you ever read that passage and thought, that's interesting? Because it is interesting, right? Because John's clearly lying. I mean, it's in our Bible, but John is lying, as far as I can tell, because loads of people saw God in the Bible. Loads of people saw God. I mean, Moses and Aaron and Miriam and 72 elders, it says, saw God face to face. I mean, that's crazy. 
And it says that in Exodus and in Numbers, in two different instances, they meet with God. Um, Samson's parents saw God. Enoch walked with God. I'm sure Adam and Eve saw God when they were walking in the cool of the day. Um, who else? Isaiah saw God. Uh, gosh, who else? Let's pull some more examples. I don't want to stop there. Um, Jacob, he wrestled with God. How do you wrestle with God and not see him? I mean, maybe that's why he lost. <laughs> uh, people saw God all the way through the Old Testament. Now, I'm joking when I say John's lying, okay? Obviously, he's not, he's not lying, but he's making a point here that doesn't seem to work if we look at the Bible as a static document again. Because all these people did see God, and yet John is saying, nobody has seen the Father except for Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying, something's up with all these instances where people saw God. And it can't be trusted in the same way that we trust Jesus and what he says of the Father. When it talks about Jesus, it says he's the image of the invisible God. He comes to bear witness to what we have never seen. <laughs> we've only dreamed of and, and imagined. And, you know, if I got a jigsaw, I don't know if you guys like jigsaws. I used to do jigsaws all the time. Uh, it was a big thing with our family. We'd, like, go on holiday and we'd get a jigsaw and we'd sit around the fire and we'd do a little jigsaw puzzle. And um, You guys know what I'm talking about when I say jigsaw, right? Germans know. Like, um, basically, like a puzzle that's cut into a lot of pieces. So maybe I got a thousand piece puzzle okay a thousand pieces and uh, it's all in the box and I just hand around the box and I say everyone take one piece okay don't show anyone keep it hidden you know and I was like now look at your piece okay what do you think the puzzle is what do you think the, the picture is how well do you think you would do if I said look at your piece and now draw me the puzzle it's a thousand piece jigsaw how well do you think your picture would be do you think it would be accurate you reckon yeah pretty close <laughs> it's not going to be very good is it you look at your puzzle piece and it's like, oh, there's a bit of water. Maybe it's a sea, maybe it's a river, maybe it's a pond, maybe it's a bath. <laughs> All I see is a bit of water. And maybe it's actually clouds. Uh, maybe it's the sky and I've just seen the blue and thought of it one thing and it's maybe another. I mean, it's very hard for you to draw a thousand piece puzzle looking at one piece, isn't it? And maybe if I said, well, okay, um, why don't you each show each other? what your piece is and describe it. And so you could say, well, I've got a piece that looks like the, the sea or river or something like that. And, and someone else goes, well, I've got, um, I've got some people and they look like they're playing. Okay, well, maybe they're, they look on their sand. I can't see what it's standing on, but maybe, well, maybe they're standing on a beach playing next to the sea. And someone else goes, oh, I, I've got a building. And it's like, well, maybe there's some buildings next to the sand. And right, I mean, you might be able to start. And then I said, okay, all of you draw a picture now. Would any of your pictures be the same? No, but they'd be more similar, right? Than the initial picture. And so there would be a progression. If I then said, okay, you can all have five more pieces, would your picture get closer to the picture on the box? It would get better, right? It would get more and more. The more pieces you get, you would get more and more likely that you have the right image. But what do you really need to actually finish, the, to draw the puzzle and to draw the picture? You, you need the picture on the box, right? You just need to look at the picture. And I think this is the, the important thing, and this is what we find in the scriptures, is that there is constant revelation and, and, a, and a picture of who God is throughout the scriptures. God reveals himself. He talks to his people. He meets with his people. He engages with his people. But he does not show himself fully for who he is. And actually, it's only in Jesus that we suddenly see someone lift up the box and say, if you've seen this, you've seen the picture. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Before then, we are clutching at straws with pieces. 
And we have lots of pieces, and we've done very well, and the Jews had lots of things right about God. I mean, you read through the Old Testament, and it's wonderful, it's amazing, it's got full of rich truths and amazing things. And so God has given us this amazing document of the journey of the, the, the people of Israel as they've engaged with Him, as they've learned from Him, as they've experienced Him. But there is a journey, and they are learning more and more because He keeps going, here's another piece of the puzzle. Here's another piece of the puzzle. Hey, David's a man after my heart. Here's some more pieces of the puzzle. Oh, Jeremiah, why don't you have a few more pieces of the puzzle and explain a bit more about sacrifice or a bit more about my heart or a bit more about God's people? You know, it, it, he's just constantly giving more and more pieces. And what happens is when Jesus comes along, he doesn't say, all your pieces are crap. He goes, no, no, no. All these pieces belong in the puzzle, but now you can see how they fit in the puzzle. So you might be looking at that and go, oh, oh, I've got it upside down. <laughs> it actually goes that way around, right? Or you go, oh, I, I thought that was going to be down this corner, but actually it fits up that corner. And so it's not that we, um, that it's raw, that it's, 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 uh, that it's incorrect or irrelevant, but actually it's just that we are perceiving it in pieces rather than perceiving it through the lens of the picture. And so with Jesus, we get to see it as a complete picture. We get to see the whole thing. And so my point being is that we have to look at this progressive journey through the lens of Jesus. So when we're going through the progression, we know what's getting to Jesus. So when we read a thing that says eye for an eye, we don't then go and scoop out people's eyes. We go, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's read that for Jesus. Oh, God was moving them in this direction. Wow, that's amazing. And there's loads we can learn from this. It doesn't become irrelevant what he's teaching them. But what we do is we go, well, what was the point? The point wasn't God is about taking people's eyes or God is about sacrifice because we know through Jesus God isn't about sacrifice and he isn't about responding in violence but what was the point wow God is patient with his people he loves his people so much he's working with them where they are he's taking them one baby step at a time bit by bit by bit forwards that's a beautiful thing we see of God we see his patience we see his kindness we see his love we see his grace we see all of these things in the Old Testament as he's working with his people and you see him getting frustrated at times, don't you? He's like, oh, when will you get it? Come on, I want you to be moving in a direction, in a trajectory, and they seem to be stagnant. And how many times do they go back to worshipping other gods and all these different things? But you can kind of understand it, right? I mean, it's understandable that they go back to worshipping lots of gods when they came from a culture that worshipped lots of gods. It's not that they made this stuff up. It's that they actually, they came from that. And so there's this wrestling of where we come from, and this is what we bring to the Bible ourselves. We wrestle with what we've come from. And so as we engage with who is Jesus and what does he show me about God, we bring our preconceived notion of God and we wrestle with Jesus because we kind of like what we want God to be, what we've known God to be. There's, there's something painful of change, isn't there? Like if you've done something for 20 years, it kind of takes something to be, okay, I'm going to change everything and I'm going to admit I was wrong for 20 years. That, that takes a, a big step of humility. Um, it's not easy to do, but it's better to go 20 years in the wrong direction and one day in the right direction than 20 years and one day in the wrong direction, right? I mean, it's at least we, we take that step, but, but we have to acknowledge we are doing that. And this is the, the, the pain. And so again, this is more stuff we learn from the Bible that they, they struggled to engage with this new concept of God. And they kept going back to the old concepts. We learn from that. We go, oh, wow, maybe that's something I'll struggle with. And it is. We struggle with it. As, as God reveals himself in new ways, we go, oh, that's painful. Ah, it hurts. Like, it actually hurts sometimes, doesn't it? And, and so we, we, we have to be um, raw and honest with ourselves. We allow the Bible to challenge us, to, to, to cut us in that way, if that makes sense. 
Um, so I guess I just wanted to do that so we, we have a bit of a, a context in which how we engage with the Bible. We see it as this unfolding journey. And so it's not that anything in it is irrelevant um, or even wrong per se, but to apply it today in our context as though it was the same context would be wrong and would be irrelevant, right? You know, so when God says to, uh, um, to uh, David, go get, or well, when David has to go get 2,000 foreskins to uh, offer up as a dowry to, for his wife, you want to marry this woman? I want 200 foreskins. And that was what the Bible model was apparently at that time. That was a, a, a good biblical model. It just happened, right? So, I mean, does anyone plan on doing that? Right? I hope not. <laughs> right? I mean, that's really messed up. But the danger is we go, oh, well, it's in the Bible. It was relevant then. That's what, that was okay, and God was okay with that. And therefore, we should do it today. I hope not. Like, I really hope not. I really hope you are not planning a little field trip to Canaan to kill every man, woman, and child you find. I really hope not, okay? Please don't go into, uh, I don't know where Canaan is. I think it's about Iran sort of area. Please don't go into Iran and kill every man, woman, and child. The Americans are trying that, I think. Um, but... <laughs> Forget this is on camera. Oh dear. Sorry, Americans. Um, anyway. <laughs> it's not, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's, 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 it's relevant in the same way. It's relevant in the way that we discover what was God doing at the time? What was the message? And how can I learn and apply that message to my life? But you don't apply the same thing in the same way. And that's a really big difference. Um, and it happens even through the New Testament. You have to look at that in context. What was going on? Who were these people? I, I don't see anyone that opens up the Bible and when they read, Timothy, could you please bring my coat and my books because I forgot them in Ephesus. Next time we, you come over to see me, could you bring them? I don't see any of us going to Ephesus to go and look for Paul's coat and his books. Why? Because we recognize the context is he's writing to his mate and he remembers, oh, can you remember my book and my, my jacket? I forgot it last time I was around your house. Right? And so you know, there's context, and we do it well in some ways, and we do it really poorly in others. And I think it's important we recognize those contexts, and we, we don't pull the context out and try and apply it, but instead we pull the message that is the underlying thing. And we go, well, what's the message? What's God doing? What's the trajectory? Never forget the trajectory, and don't forget that the trajectory hasn't ended. And so Jesus reveals God, but the story doesn't end then. He then sends his people out. And they still learn. I mean, look at the disciples. Jesus teaches the disciples three and a half years. And then he raises from the dead. And they're all like, wait, oh, we thought you were dead. I mean, they were surprised he came back from the light. He told them three times and they're still surprised. And then, not only that, he then has to spend 50 days teaching them. Right? He teaches them about himself and the gospel. And what happens? He goes up to heaven and they don't do it. They stay in Jerusalem for 25 years. They don't go to the ends of the earth. And you're like, he just told you one thing to do. Go to the ends of the earth. Preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. And they don't do it. It takes Paul being called, and it takes persecution starting in Jerusalem before they leave. And you're just like, really? Like, and so let's not forget that this is a journey. Even the disciples who sat with Jesus three and a half years didn't get it all and still needed to learn some stuff after he left. And this is why we have the Holy Spirit. He's our teacher. This is why it's better that he would come and then that Jesus would stay. You know, there's, there's a continual journey. We're continually learning. This is why we can be in heresy for, you know, uh, one and a half thousand years. And Martin Luther comes along and goes, hey, 
this this isn't very healthy. And, and obviously, there was faithful streams all the way through uh, that that the church. But but Luther goes, hey, there's a different way than what we're doing right now, and I think we could do this better. We see the the charismatic and the Pentecostal uh, uprising in the in the 1900s, and and that brings a lot of charismatic signs and wonders and healings and stuff coming back into the church. Now, there were people who were getting healed all the way through church history, but it's happening even more today than it, than it was then, and and that's because God is continually moving us in the right direction. And so don't, don't fall into the trap to think that we're not moving forward today as well. And that's on a, that's on a global level. That's like oh, all, of, all of God's people. But make it a micro level right now. Think about yourself today. Where were you 10 years ago? Were you in the same place? Of course not, right? You've grown. And so don't, um, don't fall into the trap to think that you're not growing, you're not going to develop, you're not going to change. Because if you think you're not going to change, then every time you see him, he'll look the same. And I couldn't think of anything worse than not seeing God for, you know, go back to the Prince Caspian analogy, not seeing him for a year, and I see him and he's exactly the same. Because what does that say? It says, I'm exactly the same. I want every time I see God for him to be bigger. Because it means I've grown, I've developed, I've learned, I've, I've moved in the trajectory. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.